On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, this is Duray, and welcome to Posse of the People. On this episode, it's me, Kai, and DR talking about all the news that you didn't know from the past week. Miles isn't with us this week, but they'll be back for the next episode. And then Diara actually does the interview this week as she talks to Dustin Gibson, who's the director of Access, Disability, and Language Justice at People's Hub. You'll learn a ton of that conversation. I learned a ton of that conversation. Make sure that you listen. And uh, my advice for this week is that some decisions are just hard. And, and when in doubt, like go back to your values. That there are a lot of things that are just easy. It's like a very clear yes or no. But then there's some things that are just like hard. And we got to make sure that we like own that some things are hard. And when we get stuck, I go back to my values. I go back to like, who am I? What do I believe? What are those core things to help me wade through the really, really hard decisions? Here we go. Family. Family. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I'm Kaya Henderson on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. So, you know, it, it's it's still Black History Month, everybody. You Amen. Know, Happy History. February, you know, I y'all. I love Black History Month. And I think in honor of Black History Month, Joe Rogan wanted to apologize to all of the Black <laughs> people. He's very, very, very sorry for saying the N-word repeatedly so many times. He's very, he wants you to know, he's very, very, very sorry. Now, did he call you and tell you this? How how did he listen? It's all over the news. It's all over the news. He's so sorry. (laughs) He's sorry, but, but he said that him saying the N word so many times, all those times it was taken out of context. So this apology has a, but, but you know, just, just, just sharing with y'all that Joe Rogan is sorry for saying the N word, you know, over over many years, so much so that Spotify had to take down so many episodes of this podcast. But, you know, be sorry. And Spotify is also celebrating Black History Month by taking down podcasts, people that say the N-word. So thank you, Spotify. And thank you, Joe Rogan. <laughs> Spotify also lost $2 billion in market value <laughs> as a result of their protest. So they might want to <laughs> fix their sorry. Um, I mean, come on, y'all. It's 2022. And uh, like, it's not hard. It's just a word you don't say. Companies, you don't endorse these people. Like, I, like this is, I don't even know why this is even a question right now. It is one of those things where, you remember that the reason why people care about Joe Rogan is that he got an $100 million exclusivity deal with Spotify. It's a lot of money. And it's like, y'all did not bet this. There are there are so many incredible podcasts that would have benefited from, from such a deal or even a fraction of a deal like that. So many incredible voices and stories to be told. And then you get Joe Rogan, who is up here using racial slurs and not, I mean, one time is bad, but this is, they they are now up to a hundred episodes they had to remove of Joe's podcast. That is unreal. And remember, people keep saying free speech, free, free speech. Free speech applies to the government. It does not apply to private companies like this. And there's no protection from accountability. It's good that, it's good that this is happening and also like wild that he still has a podcast. Like Tiara, I'm super excited about Black History Month being the kickoff to our year-long celebration of Black history. Woo woo! Come on, February. Um, and I am excited because my news this week is about reparations. Oh, isn't February a great time to talk about reparations? One of my friends told me that they're going to come for me because I talk about the critical race 
teaching on the podcast and that there's a list somewhere and that all of us are going down for this. But that's okay because I think we should have a conversation about reparations. Um, And this is about the state of California, who um, may be the first state in the nation to seriously consider reparations for Black Americans. Governor Gavin Newsom has convened a task force, a reparations task force, and they are charged with doing two things. Um, They are going to study the state's role in perpetuating the legacy of slavery, and they are recommending proposals to the legislature by next year. Um, There are people in the state of California, um, state legislators, who want to lead on this issue um, because they are of the belief that as California goes, so goes the country. And they are considering, they are um, listening to testimony from people. Um, They are uh, reading and studying research and policies and they're going to put together a set of expansive proposals that include everything from direct payments to housing and business grants to recommendations to reform policies that um, are discriminatory against people. And a while ago, like probably more than a year ago, um, one of my first pieces of news on the pod was a story about Evanston, Illinois, which is the first um, government in the United States, city government, to approve financial reparations. If you remember, Evanston had uh, approved a $10 million fund that included housing grants and business grants for Black Americans. So we're in some big conversations about cash repar- about reparations broadly. Cash reparations are a particularly thorny issue for people. Black Americans widely back cash reparations. Me too. I just want to say for the culture, I'm down with cash reparations. Um, But cash reparations are largely unpopular with white Americans. But people thought it was okay for the Japanese people because in 1988, President Reagan signed legislation that gave uh, $20,000 payments to Japanese Americans who were forced to go into internment camps um, during World War II. And so if we thought that cash was okay for some sets of people, I'm wondering why we aren't thinking that cash might be part of a larger package of reparations to African-Americans. There's a quote from Kathy Masaoka, who is the chair of the Nikkei for Redress and Civil Rights, which is a group that fought for the Japanese reparations. And she has what I think is a really um, interesting caution for us as we consider reparations for Black people. She says, if a country is really serious about correcting wrongs, a country would do like what Germany did, which is to educate their whole population. Um, And Kathy feels like in the Japanese reparations piece, Um, a public education campaign about the harm done was missing. Well, I thought that this was particularly interesting given that we have a public information campaign about the harm done to Black people in slavery. And that is this whole conversation about what um, accurate the teaching of accurate history looks like. And we're seeing school boards and state legislatures and governors Um, create conditions uh, where we would not actually educate the whole population about the harms that have been done um, during enslavement because some it makes people feel uncomfortable. And I'm sure that this is something that Germany reckoned with, but what they ultimately decided was to ensure that this happened never again. Um, Everybody needed to have a clear understanding of what happened, why it happened, how it happened, so that it wouldn't happen again. And I think that is um, interesting advice to think about as we see all of these policies um, being enforced across the country. Yeah, reparations. You know, California knows how to party. I'm down with it. If California is the first state to enact reparations, I think it would we'd be having a very different conversation about reparations across this country. So happy Black History Year kickoff, February. Um, and let's get some reparations in California. The thing that I, that I had that I thought was interesting, Harvard, uh, the Kennedy School just put out a, um, 
a piece titled The United States Pays Reparations Every Day, Just Not to Black America. And let me just read the first paragraph. This will be my contribution today. Uh, Farmers, fishermen, people who've lost bank accounts or pensions, people who've had a bad reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine, people who've had a reaction to any other vaccine, indigenous people, veterans, descendants of veterans, people who get hurt on the job, people who built nuclear bombs, people exposed to pesticides, coal miners who get black lung disease, people who lose paychecks or homes from floods, droughts, or other natural disasters, people who are impacted by trade agreements. That's a long list, but it's still a fraction of the many people and groups who receive compensation either from or through the government for the harms they have suffered. And then it goes on to say, every day, a subset of this group of people receives some sort of compensation. And for Black people, it seems to be politically unpopular or impossible to some others. And I just say that because one of the big critiques I've heard about reparations is like, how could you do it? It's taken so long. Uh, you know, what would it look like to even build the infrastructure to implement something like this? And it's like, actually, we already built it, already done it, already tried it with other people. Uh, this is just an example of people's understanding of who is worthy and who is not. I think this is. there's also just the examination of, yes, we're talking about the legacy of slavery in terms of reparations and just the reparations alone for that piece. But it's also things that have happened in like our parents' lifetimes, for example, that have been intentional, purposeful. And really, now we're in a space where now there's such a big gap between Black wealth and white wealth. And a lot of that was because of, you know, kind of the intentional demise of, of Black people having wealth or having home ownership. So I'm reading kind of like a complimentary piece, Kaya, that's in The Guardian, and it talks about a family who purchased a home in California, Black family, in 1959. And their neighbors led a relentless harassment campaign in an effort to get them to move away. They prank called them, they threw rocks at their windows, they burned a cross on their lawn, they spray painted their garage. Black cancer lives here. Don't let it spread. That was in 1959. So, so many incidents like this where people actually, you know, would 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 leave their homes in terror and fear um, and the impact that that had on them financially in terms of their wealth. Um, so, I, you know, I think those are the type of events that I think about. It's like it's 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 all of the injustices that, that have led us up to this place and for which we have so many statistics to prove. Um, and so I think that, you know, just look looking at the breadth of what would have to be considered in terms of quantifying what has happened to black people um, so purposefully, so intentionally, um, so maliciously. Um, is something that I, you know, I, I hope that this conversation expands to, to really uh, talk about and shine line on. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Speaking of black wealth, boy, oh boy, was I excited to see this. So my news today is um, about black women on corporate boards. Okay, here we go. Let me start by saying that 4% of board seats at S&P 500 companies are held by black women, 4%. So Wow. This article, though, is is giving us hope and excitement because there are two women, Black women, Merlene Santil and Robin Washington, and they're veteran executives that may sit on numerous boards. And they decided to start an organization called Black Women on Boards, where for free, um, once you've applied and and have been selected, they will work with you in terms of grooming you to be on a board. So one, helping you to get connected to a board to actually, you know, go through the process of being considered, but then also give you all the tools to ensure that you can be successful once you're on that board. So I just thought this was super interesting given, you know, so much we've talked kind of ad nauseum around corporations and brands and particularly post, you know, the murder of George Floyd, all of these companies are now making all of these pledges to do all of these things. But I think it's structural changes like this where you're really having inclusivity and representation from the top and with folks who are going to hold those organizations accountable for however they're prioritizing issues around equity, inclusion, and diversity. So I just saw this. I thought it was a really incredible first step. These Black women that have started this organization are seem incredibly impressive. Robin Washington is uh, on the board of directors for Alphabet, Salesforce, and Honeywell. And Santil is on, um, is an, a lead independent director at Rocket Lab, a board member at GitLab, involved technology and light speed, com- light speed commerce and TD Synax and Alchemy Technology. That's a lot of boards to be on. This is pulling in some, some coins here. These are paid boards. So I would say all that, this is great. We need more of this. We also have to put guardrails on all of this because we shouldn't just be on any, any board. There are some companies that I wouldn't I wouldn't advise for us to be participants in because of what those companies do. I thought this, you know, just was like a, a purpose-driven initiative that that I appreciated and that it would have take, taken black women to initiate to make to make this happen. I thought this was um this is a this is a really important story, Diara. Thanks for bringing it to the pod because a lot of people don't understand how board membership works. You alluded to it, right? These sisters are making a lot of money. When you are on a paid, when you're on a corporate board, you draw a salary. Um, you are drawing a salary of anywhere from twenty five thousand dollars to millions of dollars, right? Some boards pay by the board meeting. Some boards pay you just an annual flat salary. There are lots of people who, when they retire or when they stop working, they'll get on two or three boards and make the salary that they made previously. There's also stock in the company. And, you know, a lot of us don't understand how this stock game worked. I'll tell you, I had no idea, but I was on a board. I was on a corporate board and I was granted stock as part of my board service. And every time that company did a deal to where there were different investors, I got paid. I got paid money that 
I had like big sums of money that I had no idea I would get because I didn't understand how board service worked. And so putting Black women on boards is not just about representation. It is about wealth building in ways that we have no idea about. Um, It is incredibly lucrative to be on corporate boards. And you can mess yourself up if you don't have the right approach, if you don't have the right mentorship and coaching, if you're on the wrong board, right? There are you know, lots of liabilities as well. But if you get on a board, especially of a company before it goes public, you stand to make a lot of money. So Black women, we need to understand how these these are the systems that reinforce um, Black poverty and white wealth. And these women are trying to, you know, open the gate of wealth generation to Black women. And so do yourself a favor, understand um, what board membership looks like and consists of, network with people, support these ladies as they try to get Black women on boards. Um, This is a way for us to completely and totally change our economic game. I came from the human capital world, human resources, so did Kaya. And you know, people always say that the talent is there. That's true. The people are there. But you also have to build a system to find them, to source them, to recruit them. And I found that in the corporate world, on boards, that whole world is often like who you know. It's word of mouth recommendation. It's those sort of things. So there are a lot of talented Black women, Black people of all of all types who could be on these boards, but just are not in the room sitting next to the person who recommends them or, or don't know the people who lead the nominating committee or don't even know that a nominating committee is like, just don't know, just aren't around. And what is powerful about this is that it'll take away uh, nominating committee excuses to say like, we don't know where to look. It's like, oh, there's actually a place right here to look. Like that's actually really powerful because I will say as somebody who's been a part of these processes at the highest levels and at the, and at not the highest levels, the sourcing of board talent is hard. I mean, it's like not, it's not fun. It's long And sometimes you get stuck with recommendations from people you definitely don't want. You know, like the old, it's just recycling the same type of person. And it's not, and you know, most board commitment, even for people like I was talking about who you get paid, it's not your job, right? You're not like showing up to an office five days a week. It's like something you come in and out of. um, And I think that this will make the nominating committees work much better. So I'm excited about that. So I brought this because I'm actually torn about it. My news is that four men have been arrested in the connection to the death of Michael K. Williams, who, as you know, overdosed on fentanyl-laced heroin. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I think we can live in a world without prisons and jails. I'm not convinced that arresting people is like the best strategy for this at all or the best strategy for the majority of things that happen. But but I, but I read it and I'm like, you know, the article's like, what the article says, uh, they were in a narcotics conspiracy and part of a drug distribution crew, which really is like some neighborhood people, right? Drug distribution crew does not mean some, you know, massive organization. But the reason that I'm hesitant about this is that um, I'm just, I'm not certain that penalizing the drug dealers aggressively is actually going to get rid of the problem. Like, I'm not convinced this is going to be the root of the thing that changes this from being an epidemic. So I think about Narcan, I think about naloxone distribution, I think about making sure people have resources and people can use drugs safely if they want to, that we can test fentanyl, and that we can dramatically decrease the ingredients that allow people to make fentanyl and distribute in communities. I think I worry that this is just like a repackaging of the war on drugs and it'll be used to criminalize a whole new generation of black people around this. So I wanted to bring it here because I really was like, I get I get this idea of like tough accountability around fentanyl, it's killing a lot of people. And I'm like, I'm just not convinced this is a strategy that will lead to the impact that people believe it will. I take your point, DeRay. Um, but I will tell you, there were two things about this article that stood out to me. Um, one was the that according to the article, it says that even after they knew that he had died, that that Michael K. Williams had died, they continued to sell the heroin laced with fentanyl and and that you should go to jail for that. Like. 
I, you know, you know, you got killer drugs and you're still selling them. That doesn't sit right with me. And then I was surprised, frankly, that they actually brought are bringing people to justice on this because far too often when black people die, even when they're black people of, you know, celebrity, especially when there are drugs involved, you know, the system just chalks it up to black-on-black crime, or that's your drug game, or whatever, whatever. If it was a white person, they would pursue relentlessly to figure out who did this and how. And so I was actually surprised that um, they continued to investigate until they found people um, in this in this particular crime. You know, the drug thing is complicated. You know, most people know that more than more than others. Um, this light was snuffed out. I think you suggested some um, very important ways to think about combating the drug crisis. Of course, arresting these four dudes is not going to stop the hustle. But I think, you know, until we really are committed to grappling with this for what it really is, then we're going to have fits and starts around um, around how we address drug use and, and drug criminality. I'm taking a different angle on this. Why is it People can't just have a good time with how they want a good time without having to die. Like whether it's putting fentanyl in heroin or cocaine, like why why is this? Why why are they putting the, these chemicals in these drugs? I just I don't I don't I just don't that part I don't understand. And also I just from a, a business standpoint, like are people going to continue to buy drugs from you if they know that people are dying from them? I just I think just philosophically, practically, like, I just don't, I just don't get it. It's wild. But the deal is, isn't, isn't, um, we're, uh, we're learning together here. Isn't the deal with fentanyl that it makes, you know, the high stronger, it makes whatever the drug that is paired with stronger and it's cheaper. Like you get more for your money when you but, cut your drugs with. And more deadly, sis, it's like filler. But it's like, yeah. but how strong do you need your heroin to be? And also we don't need cocaine to be real strong. Like that's not I what we're doing cocaine for. Wait, 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 wait. three non-addicts. How Three strong non-users. do you need your drugs to be? Okay. Listen, right. we don't right. know. It's just, you know, we, we've all had long lives and interesting lives. I'm just saying. It, mm. I just Yeah, don't. but people aren't... The thing is, is that people aren't... They're not lacing their own thing with fentanyl. I mean, people don't... Fentanyl is being used as a filler in things like heroin and cocaine and even... In the production process. In the production. So the people don't so know. They don't know. It's like an efficiency. It's just like, it's cheaper yeah, and Yeah, how to make more cheaper, stronger drugs. Better high... I mean, it's like a more high high. The problem is that it kills you and you don't even know. You think you're doing regular cocaine. You don't realize you're doing cocaine laced with fentanyl and then you're gone. Capitalism is really, that's what it all comes down to. Mm. It's ruining everything. Everything. Nothing tastes the same like it did when we were young. You can't even do drugs no more. We can't do Somebody's auntie. We can't do Mm. anything anymore. It's crazy. Yeah, but just arrest. I'm just not sure that arresting. I hear you, Kaya. I just don't know that arresting, arresting them is going to change anything about the corner. But I was going to say, I think we have to be. I, one of the things. This is a totally different direction. Sorry, but like one of the things that I've been super concerned about is the level of violence that's happening in schools right now. Right. And I was talking to a friend who is a superintendent of schools. One of his kids shot another one of his kids in the head. And the and the kid is pretty matter of fact about it. And, you know, he was just sharing with me that like people feel people what people are feeling right now is hopelessness, you know, like unbound, right? That life is meaningless. That uh, so it does it stands to reason like where we are mentally and emotionally as a society, both from the political things that are happening to the pandemic things that are happening people are you know people are in bad shape and so yeah. chasing higher highs seems logical right now like it does, i'm i'm I, yeah. I don't know anything about this i'm just saying like we're in a situation where you are applying a very rational we don't need to get that high to the thing when like we are, we're in a situation that is wholly irrational right Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. 
Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Superdeck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. All right, y'all. This is Diara. I'm doing the interview for this episode. So excited to be speaking with Dustin Gibson, who you all will hear from shortly. I just wanted to give you a little background um, on this incredible human. He's Dustin is currently the Director of Access, Disability, and Language Justice at People's Hub, a peer support trainer with Disability Link in Georgia, also a board member with Straight Ahead and Heard, and a co-creator of the Disabled Elders and Pittsburgh Without Police Funds. He is also a founding member of the Harriet Tubman Collective, Us Protecting Us in Atlanta, Georgia, and Policing in Allegheny County Committee. Dustin, that's a lot. Did I miss anything? No, that was good. <laughs> so Dustin, and we'll, and we'll hear from we'll hear from him himself, but his work addresses the nexus between race, class, and disability. He does on the work ground with the Centers for Independent Living in Southwest Pennsylvania, with a focus on deinstitutionalization and youth self-determination. His work in the National CIL Network supported youth peer support networks and policing and incarceration and disability. So, Dustin, welcome to the pod. Thank you for being here. What's up? I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. So we just want to just start with a little getting to know. So where, where, where are you from? Where are your people from? Okay, so I think those are two different questions, but I'll start with where <laughs> I'm from, which is Rock Springs, Wyoming. It's a town of like, when I was growing up, 18,000 people. Um, wow. And when we say it's like, you know, not close to anything, we mean the next town over is 14 miles away, and then the next town from that is like 66 miles. So, yeah, it's a small place in Wyoming, a rural town. Um, my people, my father's family is from St. Louis, specifically a place called Kinlock, um, the first black incorporated town in Missouri. Um, so my great grandmother was the one to take all of them and his 15 siblings out to to Wyoming. And I arrived after that. So do you still have people in Wyoming then? You saw family there? Oh, for sure. Yeah. My father yeah. lives there with my uncle. So wow. I go back and I'm still very much connected. Lovely. I love that. So I, my people are from Minnesota and, you know, up until 2020, the only black people that folks thought were in Minnesota was, you know, Prince and Morris Day. So I know what it's like (laughs) to be from a place where there are seemingly few black people. Um, but there actually is like a strong, strong community that I feel like I mean, I know I'll speak for myself that actually helped me on the, on, you know, on what I've been able to accomplish today. And a lot of the change I want to see in the world came from kind of that legacy of folks, you know, being kind of not, not being the onlys, but being fewer um, in predominantly white spaces. Yeah, I think something I often think about now is like the amount of organizing that I witnessed and didn't know it was actual organizing because of how few Black people were there. And the 
the things that they did for protection and, you know, community and yeah, would never refer to themselves as organizers or activists, but was 1000% and still are that. Right, right, right. And so then Dustin, with that, obviously that was, you know, I'm sure a launch pad for your, your work today. How did you get into your, into all the many things that you're doing? How did, how did that, how did that happen? Well, I'm, I think, I don't know, like I've always had a, a, a leaning towards um, justice or just being interested in people that were world building and attempting to create change, even if that was like, you know, resistance in hip hop, which I think is like probably the introduction to some level of like rebellion, some like teasing out of revolution. Um, and from there, I mean, like witnessing like a bunch of things that, you know, happened around me, happened to me, particularly around like disability um, and violence. But then I really got connected with the Centers for Independent Living once I uh, I moved out to Washington, Pennsylvania, which was a rural area, like maybe an hour outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and yeah, once I got connected to the Centers for Independent Living, I seen people moving and operating from a self-determination model. So it was disabled people um, being governed by disabled people and providing services mm. for disabled people under the guise of they're the experts of their own lives. So I think that was my first like real introduction to like a formal organizing like apparatus. And then from there, um, I think like I'm living in a generation in which a lot of people become conscious or are becoming conscious because of uh, policing and incarceration. So I think I'm one of many that were politicized and radicalized in moments like Troy Davis being executed um, in Georgia or Michael Brown being murdered in Ferguson and Trayvon Martin being murdered in Florida. Um, yeah. And I mean, the, that list goes on. Yeah. 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 I mean, how does how does all this really translate us into into your day to day work um, at the People's Hub? What it, what does a day look like for you? Um, well, it's interesting because this is the first time that I've been remote and I'm remote in a time in which the world is remote. But the, the idea of People's Hub is, is one that it's always been remote um, because the idea is to connect like people across geographies, like people that are rooted in local communities to be able to skill share and, and, and strategize together and support different projects um, in collaboration. Um, so the person that brought me on, Landry Williams, who became an ancestor last year, brought me on with the intention of like really thinking through how do we implement disability justice um, in different movement spaces that like we're concerned with, which is like solidarity economy, um, dismantling the global far right, which is like our ultimate goal, um, and disability justice. So like under like we kind of like operate as like a think tank in that realm. But I think what Landry and I like had visioned out was um, a real need for access to be implemented in different movement spaces, but also understanding that we don't have a movement for disability justice right now. Um, mm. And that is absolutely critical. Like the, the pandemic is just like heightened and illuminated that, that need. Um, so I would say at the core of what's happening at People's Hub, at least like what I'm proximate to is the attempting of building out an ecosystem of a movement. Um, so really the base building right now, we're still in that phase. I don't know how long we'll be there. Um, hopefully not long because it's like urgent and like really needed right now, more than any time in my life, at least. Right, right. And I think just, you know, obviously COVID, you know, the COVID of it all has really you know, magnified all of the disparity issues, particularly when it comes to, you know, the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. So I'd imagine that at a time where, you know, it, it, it's more important than ever to movement build, um, you know, people are just, people people are hurting. Um, and I think, you know, and, and whether it, it's because they were already, you know, people with living disabilities or because of COVID causing, you know, long haul COVID now is the thing that we're seeing is becoming more and more real. And, you know, the healthcare system is is late to be able to assess it or commit help around it, but also just kind of the federal government's lateness or just lack of urgency around around it all and how how vulnerable people really are are becoming now. I mean, I guess all that to say, like, 
I think with the COVID of it all, though, there may be, it just may be, and I guess this is my question, are there more resources being put towards getting at critical data that we need to change change policy around folks with disabilities? Like, are you seeing an, an, an insurgence of resources, an insurgence of visibility, an insurgence of people putting the pressure on so that more solutions can start to, you know, can start to really come up to the surface? So. I mean, I wish I could answer. And that's like, no. So the short answer is no. Um, and I say mm-hmm. that because like what I come out of is like people that have done deinstitutionalization work. So that's my lineage. When I started at the Centers for Independent Living, I was doing nursing home transitioning, um, which means we're going into nursing facilities, finding people that want to get free and supporting them in getting free. And that takes many shapes. Some people uh, mm-hmm. are in need of skills training uh, around transportation. Some people are in need of housing, uh, way to access food, a uh, way to, to have in-home care. Like, so that takes a bunch of different shapes. And one, one of the things I learned is like nursing homes are, are sites of confinement, which I don't think that's like a common uh, conception or perception of, you know, what nursing facilities are. We, we think about them as a society where elders go and they live the last few years of their life. But what we know is at least three quarters of the people that are in nursing facilities that are elders don't want to be in the nursing facility. And then the, the, the rest of the population there is comprised of people that are there because they don't have, uh, funds or the state won't provide um, the level of care that they need to stay in their community. Um, We refer to this as the institutional bias that for-profit corporations would rather have people in a nursing facility to literally extract profit from people's Mm -hmm. bodies and beds than to uh, be in community. And folks in those situations, in the sites of confinement, places that operate like carceral logics that are attempting to cut to to make profit off of people, they cut corners and it's a place that's like ripe for abuse and people are vulnerable to viruses way before COVID. So Mm. in this time where, you know, COVID is definitely targeting disabled people, people with health conditions, what we see is at least 20% of residents in a nursing facility have died from COVID. That's like a, that's an astonishing number. Like two out of 10 people that live in a nursing facility have died from COVID. And those are only the people that have been counted. So we know it's more. And we know that there's workers at nursing facilities. And we know that there's other congregate settings, prisons, jails. So I'd lay that out to say that I don't think that people like generally care or know about it. I want to say that people don't know because if they do and we're not acting on it in a way that I deem to be like, like really like we need to right now, then it just means that they don't care, which I don't know. I don't I don't have the answers to that. I just know that not a lot is being done about it from a government standpoint. I think we're mm-hmm. living in a period of organized abandonment, like right in front of our faces. And what I have seen is what I've always seen is communities coming together to provide mutual aid. And that's with the acknowledgement that there's a failure on the, you know, the, the, the state to provide the, the care that um, people deserve. Yeah. And I think just to just, you know, to go deeper into the not knowing of it all, just, you know, just for our audience, like I, you know, as I was preparing for this interview today, I learned that 26 percent of Americans have a disability. And that's a that's a large number of people. So if you're thinking about, okay, so that's the percentage. How many of those people are people of color? How many of those people, you know, uh, be, because of racism, because of um, systemic oppression, how many of those people don't have jobs or, or are houseless? Or just like the list goes on once you realize, oh my gosh, that as a statistic that, ex- that exists here in this country. So I think just, you know, it was, it was my own blind spot actually not not having the framework and now because of you Dustin like I see I see the framework but also see the language and also the the intersection and the proximity to to incarceration and institutionalization I think I that's something that I had not thought about in that way and it's interesting so my my family in, in Minneapolis black women my cousin and my aunt own assistant living facilities and it's interesting because I'm sure the way they run their businesses is quite different from how, and I'm just going to make a generalization, 
how folks who haven't had the same lives would run these facilities. So for example, one of my cousins, one of my my cousin that runs hers, she has a record that precludes her really from getting the job she would want. And so she started this business, right? And because of that, she hires formerly incarcerated people and trains them up. You know, because of that, she makes sure that people are taking all that to say, yada, yada, yada. I feel like to your point around the people in our communities are the ones that actually are the ones that are taking care of us and taking care of one another. I know a lot of what she does, a lot of what my aunt does isn't necessarily state policy. It is how they would take care of a family member. Right. So I don't know. You're just making me think of, of, of so many of so many different things. But I think ultimately it's getting to people with disabilities are a large percentage of our population. They're in our families. They're in our communities. They they are us. And so we need to start paying more attention and then also understanding how this is relating to other issues that people are, you know, pounding down doors and protesting about. Right. Because I, I think my question, my next question for you is how how did the police play into all of this, right? Like, is, is it the case that someone can get arrested and therefore end up in a nursing home or end up in an institution other than like a, a prison or jail? Yeah, um, I think I want to start off by saying like I, I'm like that number of like 20 percent, 26 percent of the population is uh, people with disabilities. I think what's been helpful for me is to like understand disability like in a much more expansive way than I think what is commonly understood and I how we organize ourselves in society is like kind of based upon you know like the uh, the legislation that defines disability as an impairment that limits a major life function um and these are like very white centric and stagnant definitions and understandings of disability. I think it's important to me because I'm thinking about the response to, you know, somebody that is marginalized, somebody that is poor, somebody that's black, they're trans, they're 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 not a man, they're not like people that are marginalized, the response to their disabilities is almost like the same as somebody that has an enormous amount of power. Whereas though a person that is poor lives next to a military waste dumping site or a coal waste dumping site, or you're in a prison where like the architecture itself is disabling and violent. And the response to it should not be the same as somebody else. So it literally like lives differently in our bodies and minds based on like our positions in society. And also Mm. like those definitions of disability, I say they're like, like stagnant and, and, white centric because it's not capturing all of the ways in which disability lives in us because of these conditions that have been created. Um, I think about like, we'll talk about places like the South Bronx or or I'm familiar with Pittsburgh and been in Pittsburgh for some time. So there's a place called Braddock where we'll talk about the childhood asthma rates based on the pollution. And we'll say it's like 80%, Right. right? And we won't say those kids are disabled. So the, the the legislation around addiction even is saying like addiction is a disability if you have like documentation or record of having that impairment or if you are in recovery, which is like counter to everything that I know about addiction, right? Like I don't have mm-hmm. a PhD in it, but I know people that have been with addiction my entire life. So I think what it does is misses a whole group of people. So the political understanding of it is it's not just like whether somebody identifies as somebody that has a disability or they're disabled. It's to understand that people are being politicized, whether they like it or not. And disabled people are a political class. And there's an actual like motive for people to be disabled from the state, from corporations. It's not like this thing where it's like, you know, people have disabilities and everyone in the world is attempting to figure out how to make quality of life better. It's more so of like, how do we create a disabled class that could support these other systems of oppression like a carceral institution? Um, That's right. So I think about the carceral apparatus and like the prison industrial complex. It doesn't exist in the same way that it does if disability is not criminalized, disability is not pathologized, and the prison itself is not a disabling factor. Like when you think about control, when you think about auditory or the the lack of auditory stimulation stimulation or um, the the restrictions on freedom of mobility, like all of these things are like central and core to the prison industrial complex. And they also create and exacerbate disability. 
Um, so I would argue that the majority of people in prisons and jails are disabled folks. And if they're not now, if you stay there long enough, you will develop disabilities. Mm-hmm. And it's also making me think of just like, you know, physiological, physiological trauma over generations, just like the legacy of slavery and like how how much of that is in in our bodies. You know, so I, I, I think you know, having this more expansion, expansive language and expression around disability is so, it, it, it's, it's, it's just, I think it's critical in understanding our own, you know, just like you're saying, like the vehicles for oppression and how it's all working in, 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 in tandem. And I, I guess I'd just like to cite one more example there. There's like, uh, yeah, please. like, I have more questions than I have like answers, like to, to be honest. And my questions mm-hmm. are around like, okay, if, if we organize society in a way where we have to capture data around like who has a disability and who doesn't, and then we provide services based on that, um, then what does it mean when people are erased from it? And then also who is in control of like, you know, uh, classifying people as disabled. Like I think about a place like Palestine that is like literally been under occupation for decades that has extremes amounts of violence that is inflicted upon them. In a place where it's like that because of restrictions and sanctions, they're not able to produce the amount of prosthetic limbs that are required for the amount of people that have lost limbs. Right. And the the numbers that come out about like who is how many people are disabled is like very low. Um, so like what does that mean? Like these are things I just have like more questions about because it doesn't happen in the exact same way, but that happens throughout black communities all throughout the U.S. And that question of, you know, how can people experience like a phenomena that literally changes the water, changes the land like slavery, and you have like the same disabilities as somebody else and it's living in your body in the same way if your people have, you know, survived that. Like, these are some of the questions I have. And it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just have questions around it, I guess. And that's kind of what animates the work that we do and the reason why we say we need a disability justice movement that has an ecosystem, because a part of that is like people thinking about this in a very deep way, in, in ways that I don't think has, has happened up until this point. Mm-hmm. I think it doesn't. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, even, you know, Brian Stevenson talks a lot about, um, you know, the dignity of incarcerated people or the lack of dignity, just the lack of dignity that our culture, you know, through pop culture or through media or through narrative, it's like once someone's incarcerated, they're no longer a part of our society. They're no longer, you know, no no longer valued or no longer seen, which couldn't be farther from the truth, obviously. And, and just given that we are, are the folks that we have incarcerated, there, there's so many folks that are incarcerated that they're, you know, I feel like there hasn't been a panel or a discussion that I've been at when you ask somebody if they know of or have a family member that's incarcerated, Every mostly everybody raises their hand, right? No matter color or creed. So, you know, I say all that to say that I think we have a, and, and you're hitting on this, like, I think we have a cultural problem in this country where when it comes to people that have been otherized, somehow it's so easy to not see those people or not to make the very easy connection about your similarities to that person, right? I just, I I don't know. I think it is, I think these are when you have questions, I have questions. I think for me, it's like, how can we, how can we have a culture that completely disregards the aging, for example? Like, I just don't understand why we have these systems in place where literally folks get lost people who have contributed to society folks who have created created opportunities and communities and and maybe even not i just you know there i feel like even as i'm you know aging i just turned 41 i think about that all the time like what what would it mean for me to be a black queer woman in america what services will there be for me when i'm elderly if if any at all so all that to say, I'm picking up what you're putting down. But if you also want to talk a little bit about the work you were doing around the Disabled Elders Fund, that would be great for the audience to hear that as well. Yeah, I should say, I don't think those connections are necessarily like an easy one. I think there's so many valid reasons in which like oppressed people would reject labels of disability, just given the history yeah. of how... Yeah people have been treated once the label has been projected upon people in some situations and then also put on people. So I think there's like a very like valid resistance to that, um, that like awareness campaigns, like totally miss, I, I should say. 
And what I meant by that is just, it's, it's the humanity, right? Like how often in American culture, we categorize someone and then they're, therefore they lose their value or lose their humanity when, you know, when, when clearly those categorizations are, are, are systems of oppression, but also there are systems that keep our families and our friends and our communities isolated um, and, and therefore less protected. You know what I'm saying? So I think it's, it's kind of just me and my own body, my own personhood being you know, making sure that whether it is a family member or somebody that I don't know, that's a part of my community, that I'm making sure that I'm I'm seeing that person and therefore acting against the system that is trying to keep me and said person apart or seemingly different. Yeah, this is a, I totally agree. Um, yeah, the disabled elders fund, that's uh that's something that came out of we did a fund called the Pittsburgh Without Police Fund with a young organizer, Nia Arrington, who has feels like she has been active as long as I've been. But we did that fund to just like distribute $1,200 to, we started out to say 12 young people, but it ended up being like 20 um, young people that were doing abolitionist work. So it was people that were doing farming, um, aquaponics farming to Kumba and Homewood, or there was a 12-year-old Celeste that was writing poems and advocating for African-American history in in her uh, middle school. So it was a range of people doing things that we thought were abolitionists. And we seen like how we could distribute like literally just money to people. So we did the same with the Disabled Elders Fund, like in a pandemic, in a time where, you know, we felt like, well, we know that the government wasn't providing the resources necessary to survive, let alone like you know, have some quality of life that we wanted to just like raise money and give a thousand dollars to yeah different disabled elders. And we ended up raising enough to give to 22 disabled elders. Um, so some of these folks, like the, the last person we gave to had spent 47 years in prison and as a juvenile lifer and is, is now attempting to pay bills. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Somebody else, like we gave money to folks that were on the ground in Haiti working with deaf elders. We gave thousand dollars to the Palestinian Medical Relief Society after people that are attempting to get medical supplies into the West Bank. Like, so it was just like an array of people. It was a beautiful experience to be able to like uh, sit with the elders and listen to uh, stories and like hear their ideas for like, you know, what is happening right now, what we should do. Um, so I think those are connections that like we deepened and will carry with us. And I did that with Talila Lewis, somebody that I value is like a friend, a coworker, uh, uh, everything. I love that. So, so beautiful. And so we'll make sure that our listeners know more about that and all the people that you're naming. Um, so thank you for that. And so speaking about grant dollars, you're a, a Justice Rising awardee, which is an inaugural awards that they are giving to folks in the community who are doing Black liberation and justice work, putting Open Society Foundation to supporting it. Adam Colbreth and Tara Huffman are, are the creators of it. Tom Periello, who is executive director of Open Society US, very much championed this award. But this award to, to what you were listing earlier is just for you to do with what you want. So one, how are you feeling about that? And also, do you think this is the right move for, you know, folks? for philanthropies to to grant money in this way? I think that people that do work on the ground, and I mean, other work in other areas too, I think I'm exposed mostly to people that do on the ground work and understand the experiences like in an intimate way, I think. I think those people need to be supported. I think those are the people that were here yesterday. They'll be the people that are here tomorrow. And I see like how many of how many of us struggle, I would say. And I mean, we're proximate to a lot of things. Like, I think there's like a, a weight that people carry when they do this type of work that is detrimental to a lot of things, relationships, health. Like, so there's so many sacrifices that people make. So I think that anyway, folks that do this type of work could be supported. Yeah, I champion. Um, I don't think that, I, I mean, obviously like liberation is not going to be produced by foundations and philanthropy. I think the existence of it itself is, you know, uh, uh, part of like a colonial project. So yeah, I would say that like Mm -hmm. for people to get, uh, to, to get support is, is yeah, I don't, and and for myself, like I haven't processed it to be honest. So 
I just kind of like continued to to go and then like you know when the award comes out and it happens I think I'll I'll sit with it then but I know my parents is happy they they like yeah because they don't understand what I do so my pops is like yo somebody <laughs> thinks that you're doing something good like yeah so I'm I'm happy that he's happy and good. I'm telling That's him to show blessing. up to the award show he doesn't do internet he doesn't have a smartphone we're trying to figure out how we can get how to make it happen yeah okay okay (laughs) we can end it with um with this question what piece of advice that you have gotten over the years what 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 advice has stuck with you basically I don't know that's that's a very hard question because I've got so much advice and continue to I think one that sticks out to me is when my brother told me to how to swallow my mother's shepherd pie, which is like a terrible meal. And yeah, she'll probably listen and be upset about that. But he taught me like that I could actually swallow it without like smelling it or breathing it or tasting it. That was like the best advice as a young me. And then I would say uh, there's like, there's two people I'm thinking of. One, Makani, who is also getting uh, the award, Makani but. She, I don't know if she remembers or not. I was just like in a room one time and I heard her say the the questions that animates the work for the rest of her life. And that to me became like an invitation into the just not knowing. I think up until that mm-hmm. point, like I was so angry. And I mean, I still am angry and full of rage with the things that like we're up against. Um, and I came from such a place of like, I know exactly what we need to do. And when I heard Makani say that, it was like probably one of the only epiphany moments that I could remember of finding myself questioning like what I knew and why I thought I knew what and being comfortable with like operating in this this thing that I might not ever answer or no one might ever answer. But knowing that those questions like are, are very important and now since I've learned more, I've learned about like Grace Lee and Jimmy Lee Boggs who talk about like these questions that are like very important to, to organize around. Um, and then uh, Miriam Kaba too, who I heard say mm-hmm. something about uh, just, uh, we don't need a, a lot of people always to like actually change things. If we look at history, it's been like a small amount of people that have actually like gotten things moving and yeah, that's been important because I think so much of like my young, like, and I say young, like this is like seven, eight years ago. So much of my energy was directed towards getting as many people aware and moving. And instead now it's kind of like, you know, small groups of dedicated and committed people. I see like how monumental change could happen over time if people are just, you know, continuing to grind and do work, I guess. We're not grinding in a capitalistic way, but yeah, grind like pushing, right? Pushing ahead. That's right. (laughs) Dustin, it has been a pleasure. So thank you. Where can we find you on the social medias if you are open to being found? Yeah, I would say three places. So I would say one, (laughs) let's get free, which is the Women in Trans Prisoner Defense Committee on IG. It's called Women in Prison. Heard which is the organization of deaf and disabled folks that the abolitionist organization of deaf and disabled people. And the the tag is be heard DC and then people's hub, which is just people's hub. Um, so those three places is where either there are things I care about or where I'm located sometimes. Perfect. Well, we, I know I, well, I've already been checking those things out because I've just been in awe of you, but I'm sure our listeners will get all the things and all the directions and like you be on the journey to be open to the questions and the exploration. So one day we can be free. So thanks so much again, Dustin. Hope to see you in real life. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pati the Brew is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson.
Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.